Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City veteran trumpeter Marcus Hampton. He's gearing up for a new show at KC's Blue Room off 18 and Vine on August 12, 2016. This show, amongst many other things, will feature material from his latest 2014 album called Hampton House of Jazz. He talked to Neon Jazz about growing up in Indianapolis as the nephew of the great Slide Hampton and the cousin of the equally great Lionel Hampton. He also talked about his 21-year career as an active-duty military musician, his time in Kansas City, and many more things. So get to know Marcus and dig this interview, my friends. Thank you for taking some time out. I appreciate it. Oh, that's fine. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off here. I always like to get a snapshot of what's going on, but obviously you got a big gig this Friday at the Blue Room. So talk to me about not only this gig Friday, but kind of what's going on with you lately. Well, lately, I guess you can you consider it lately. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I just sit home every day, man, practice my horn, try to build some chops, you know, to have some endurance, and uh, and I track music every day. I'm not doing much more than that because uh, there's not much for me I, that I want to do, you know. Talk to me about this gig on Friday. How did the gig come about, and how are you feeling about it? I feel pretty good about this one in, in compared to all the ones I've had played so far there. Chris was uh, basically responsible for me getting the gig, so he knew everybody there more so than I do. And he uh, keeps me in touch when at that time. Gregory, the, my tennis sax player, I asked him to uh, pick me up a, a rhythm section together compared to the one I had last time. So he done that, and so I got some super players that are going to be playing on Friday, and I'm very pleased with it so far. So this gig is going to obviously showcase your 2014 album, Hampton House of Jazz. And I want to oh, ask yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going to ask you about that album. It's a great album. Talk to me a little bit about the inner workings of what in, went into this album. It was an album that happened, I think I uh, recorded in 2006 in Denver, Colorado. They have a lot of great musicians and as well as teachers there. And when I moved there, uh, I, I went to check out the status of everything that was going on as much as I could around there. And I ran to this uh, jazz club downtown in, uh, in Colorado, Denver, Colorado, there. And they had this uh, jazz club that, that I think been established since 1955 called El Chapulapet. It's for a lot of jazz people, even ones that uh, maybe don't live there, but come there to perform. And it's a, night, it's a night little jazz club. When I went there and I found this club, eventually me and my wife, because we moved from Tampa, Florida at the time. And I found this little jazz club downtown Denver. And I was, I was inquiring about who's who and whatever. And so eventually when I went there to hear a performer, I ran to a guy named Keith Auckland, who's a tennis sax player as well as a teacher in Denver. And sometimes he, he couldn't make all his gigs, so he gave the gigs to me to play. So I, that's how I came uh, to be involved with those cats there. And the same token, he he'd known a lot of people at the time around there that I, that I didn't know, and I I was going to do a recording, and I asked him to, could you put me to, together some guy that we felt could do the recording and make make a a nice recording, so he did that, and that's how that that thing came about, and that was my first album, and all those songs on that was about twelve songs, I wrote them all myself because I wanted to have a chance to. Uh, put my stuff out there, so to speak. So I'm going to go ahead and go way back in your life here, growing up in Indianapolis. Obviously, you came from jazz royalty, being the nephew of Slide and the cousin of Lionel, but talk to me about growing up 
and Indianapolis and how you kind of got those seeds of not only jazz but music in your blood? Well, when I was a little kid, about seven, eight years old, my father gave me a cornet. And uh, they were so busy, I tried getting this up together because none of of my uncles and aunties in the family didn't read music at that time, especially during the Second Year War. And they didn't learn how to read music until after the Second Year War. But my father gave me a cornet, and I was in elementary school. I used to carry my cornet to school every morning and play the flag up. And when school let out, I played the flag down. My, like I said, my father never taught me how to play the trumpet or anybody in the family for that matter. We just all in the family learned the same way the first generation did. They were sliding all them and his, his brothers and sisters and taught by our grandfather, their father. So they didn't learn to read, but they they could play by just by ear. And that's what they did. They kind of like rehearsed their songs and their different parts, and they put the band together from, the, from my grandfather. And that's how that happened. And it kind, of, it kind of kept repeating itself with the second generation, which is me and my cousins. So we didn't learn how to read neither. So that that continued on for quite a few years until I got ready to go into high school, and I still couldn't read. But they didn't require us to do any whole lot of reading or sight reading, nothing like that. They just want you to learn the melody of songs and be able to play these parades and jamboree and things like that. So that's how that came about. And drafting the military, which was 1961, I took my basic training out here at Fort Leonardwood. In my eighth week, I think, of, a, of, of basic training, they had a band on the post on post there, that was the post band, and they sent those musicians over to talk to anybody that may be interested or maybe had uh, some kind of a musical background. So that's how I got to go back to that particular post for that uh, different uh sort of training so i got all had to go to an audition and the audition came kind of strange to me because uh, i knew i couldn't read so i'm, I'm trying to figure out how i'm gonna get through this audition and the guys and, and that was giving me the audition with the co and the first sergeant and all of them they had me in the office and they asked me to play certain things like certain scales and i did that because everybody can memorize scales and the, and that was one phase of it. Then they asked me, "Well, let's, let's check your my sight reading." And I knew I couldn't sight read because I couldn't read at that time period. Hmm. They said, "Well, we're gonna check it anyway." And so they picked this piece of music on the on the stand, and they asked me to look it over and let them know when I was ready to go ahead and start playing. So I looked it over and I and I knew I couldn't read the music, but I looked and saw certain things like the sharps, all the flat that was in the. the in the key that it was in. And uh, the main thing I saw is uh, the title of the song was Come Down Almighty King, which is actually a, a song I learned probably in kindergarten or watching Sunday school or something. So I knew that song inside and out. So they're going to say, well, okay, Mr. Hampton, are you ready to perform? I said, yes, sir. And so they counted off, and I started playing. It's a nice, slow church-type ballad, so it wasn't nothing, it wasn't nothing really to do. And they thought I was really sightly, but I wasn't. I was just playing by memory. Hmm. And uh, and so they didn't really know, and I didn't let I didn't tell them any difference. So I was uh, accepted in the in the uh, band program in the military. I always ask about albums that would sway folks when they're younger, and and obviously growing up with Slide and Lionel, you had to be enormously inspired by their playing and their influence over you. What what kind of memories do you have growing up of them and what they taught you and how they really got you involved at jazz? 
Well, Sly been the most famous we have even to this day. When Sly was about 15 years old, he was writing music as he was basically trying right now, or writing he's doing now. So uh, he was uh, the youngest of, uh, of all the siblings. So we kind of admire from what he was able to, to teach himself, or even some schooling he got from the Jordan Conservatory back home. So that that was the thing. I used to listen to him and his, his brother, because we call Mayshaw, sure his real name is Bill. He played trumpet, and him and Sly used to play together a lot of gigs around town. I noticed, I noticed when they were young, they used to be in the basement of where we was living at, and they'd be running over these songs and listening to the records and playing on a record before they go on town that night and, and start performing. That was one instance that I, that I remember. And the Boston family were just doing their, what they regularly do, you know, learning their, their, their songs and putting the big band together. It was the family band. But if you was, had the chance to talk to them, some of the older generation, that first generation, they would tell you that we're not jazz players. They were just entertainers, and they'd tell you that's what they was all about. They were entertainers. Because grandfather had them doing a lot of things by side, trying to play swing music or jazz. Jazz was not a, a big thing for them at that time. They were coming along because he had them performing when they were three and four years old on the road as little kids of the first generation. Because granddad and grandmama, they had 12 kids. They lost three of them, so they raised nine. Wow. And then nine is, is uh, only three of them left now. And that's Slide, the youngest, Mayshaw, the next oldest, and Don, who lives in New York. And she, Don used to play alto sax when she was younger, but she don't do that no more, and she's in not good health right now. But Don had had a lot of experience singing and dancing all around the world, and she was in a few movies, so she's in that Malcolm X movies and things like that. Even myself, when I was uh, in the military, and I was living in Georgia at one time, after I retired, and I used to go over to Tuskegee and play with people where at the time. And the, the thing I kind of forgot about it, but it kind of went back to my mind as I got, got to thinking about it. I played a gig over with Spike Lee's auntie. Her name is Consuelo Lee. She used to play keyboard and she used to teach at a lot of universities there. And that I thought that was something really to think about. You, know, you play with somebody like that had that kind of statue. John Lee uh, the, 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 was uh, Spike Lee's father, played bass. I never got a chance to meet him, but uh, oh, I didn't get a chance to meet Spike Lee, but I played with his, with his auntie. Right on. So let me talk to you about your 21-year career as an active duty military musician. You went all over the world, had many experiences. What was that like for you? The music part of military life is, is great. <laughs> and uh, that other stuff, you, know, you can keep that. <laughs> 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 because that's, that's never been a, well, you know, when you're an entertainer, a musician, you don't think about wars and all them kind of things. You know, you think about the love of music and what you're doing, and you consider yourself pretty fortunate to be a musician or entertainer of any sort. A lot of people like to be, and you, you'll find people come up to you and say, could you teach me to play like you, or could, I wish I could play like you, and all that. I said, no, I'm a certain person. I only do things a certain way. I said, now, I can teach you maybe fundamentals, but you're going to play you. And you're going to perform as you. You ain't going to perform like me. I, I love Freddie Hubbard. I can't play like Freddie Hubbard. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The one thing that I noticed, too, that your family opened up the Hampton House of Jazz. Talk to me about how that came about what that was like. It was me and my, my third, third wife, my last oh. 
when I retired and I moved to Florida, my wife and I had different uh, uh, things that we did, and she uh, she was a great cook and things like that, and she did a lot more things than that I can take a, little, a lot of time to tell you about that. We won't go into that, but she was a great cook, and her mother was, and her father and all, the her family was really pretty good involved when we put this thing together. Because we met her both were trying to put our business together, but we couldn't find a place in, in, in Florida that was really reasonable as far as money goes and, and things that just had to be changed for what we were trying to do. So what my wife said, why don't you just play in your backyard? I said, what do you mean play in my backyard? Well, you know, get your little groups that you play with around Florida and bring them to the house and let have like a little picnic in the backyard and let them go out and play some jazz. So that was a thought. I said, well, I never really thought about that. So I decided to go ahead and do that eventually. Eventually, it grew to be very big. I started with maybe about 20 people in my backyard, and then I took to my wife decided that we should have a three-day jazz festival. So we put that in the backyard, so we ended up with 300 people in the backyard, 65 musicians, two two big bands, and Slide was in town that I didn't know at the time. And they brought him to the backyard, and we just had a ball, man. <laughs> right on. That sounds like it, man. Let me ask you about your Kansas City years. When you came to Kansas City... What was the scene like, and what what has it been like to be involved with the Kansas City jazz scene? Well, Kansas City, for how I got to Kansas City, I was uh, starting back cross country, and I knew I hadn't seen my good friend and his wife. So I knew them in Europe because we were in the same band together over in, about thirty some years ago, and uh, so I said, "Let me call him and see how he's doing," because I I was close by. So I called him and I arrived here at their at their uh, place where they were staying, uh, just a guest house that they were staying at the time. And uh, it was about twelve midnight, so it actually was actually August the first, but <laughs> 2013 when I saw them again. That's how I came to be in Kansas City. Other than that, I probably be still on the East Coast. <laughs> so expensive living. Yeah. What? Well, so now that you've been here for some time. Talk to me. What do you think is the greatest thing about Kansas City as far as our scene in this city? I don't know how you would say the greatest thing, but I know one of the two of the good things. I mean, people in this area are very polite. They uh, they see you on the street. They acknowledge you and they wave at you or say something to you. That's one thing good about it. The other thing good about it, you, had, you don't have no, nowhere near the traffic when it comes to driving around here. Um, you, know, you go on the East Coast, man, you might start out to your house or going to your job. It probably take you two or three hours to get to your job, which it ain't probably maybe about 15 miles from your house. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got so many people driving. They don't care about you. I mean, everybody's me, me, and, you know, and, and they are all, all into themselves. So, so you got to be careful what you do up and around all them people. Yeah. 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 You know, the one beauty of, of being in Kansas City is that 18 and Vine and obviously around the Blue Room there's such a history of, of jazz that's gone on let me ask you this if you could get into a time machine and see anybody who would you want to go see and where would you go to see them I don't I'm probably not to think of and, and they're not famous and, 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 uh, and uh, this was kind of like when you get a certain age and, and, you, and you, you lost your all your relatives or most of your relatives like your father and your mother or grandfather and grandmother uh, you wish you, they were still alive. Yeah. Know? So you can measure the accomplishment and you can see what they really think about it. 
there's a lot of things that even like, for instance, like if I tell you about everybody that's living today, especially here in the United States, I bet you none of them would never imagine that we're going to have our, our first black president. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So I can use that for analogy that, you know, it's, a, it's the same thing that, that you uh, you have people in your family that you never got a chance to really know or they didn't get a chance to know you. Yeah. So we just had we just had a family reunion uh, about about a month ago now. The family has grown to to a humongous size. Uh, they're probably bigger than the Austin family, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> That's how big it is, man. Because we only got three people left now that come out of that first generation. That slide, the youngest. And Mayshaw, we call his name, real name is Bill Hampton, who played trumping. He's he's about a couple of years older than Sly. Sly's 84, and so they count 86, 87. And Don, who's the oldest of the last first generation, she's a, the, the baby of the girls. And she's 88, and she can hardly walk, so she's not in real good shape no more. But their spirits are up. They still have the great feelings about certain things they deal, they deal with in life. So let me ask you a general question. Coming from you come basically from jazz royalty, a very long lineage of jazz. You spent your life playing it. So let me ask you this: It's a simple question. Why do you love jazz? I love jazz mainly because how jazz was introduced to me. For one, uh, I got into jazz. I think about jazz as one of the most powerful entities that we have, that we all have to deal with. Well, I mean, whether we like it or not, you hear jazz every day. You hear the uh, improvement of, of music and different uh, other kind of music, and a lot of came came from jazz because jazz is so innovative that it keeps you going, and you never stop learning. When especially when it comes to something like jazz, which I consider the hardest music in the world to play because you have to do so much at one instance. You don't have a whole lot of preparation sometimes, and you have to just go with what you might experience and what you know. So let me ask you this. Of of all of the gigs that you've played in your life and all the fans that you've played for, what's one of the nicest things that someone has said to you after a gig or after listening to one of your discs? What what have they come up to you and said? Let me think for a second. What could they just say to me? The first thing you, they hear uh, is sound. You sound good. If you don't sound good, I don't care what you play. It don't mean nothing, man. And the same way, if you play some music... And you don't play with with any kind of feeling or any kind of strong expression, people don't get it, and you yeah. probably don't get it neither. Because you can, if you if you if you're not expressing it, then maybe longer you don't get it neither. Yeah. But music to me, if you it, if it's not happening that way, then you haven't done your job. It's not music. It's it's it seems to be to me it's, it's it's more like noise. You can hit something on, on a tuning bar, and you're gonna get a musical sound that particular pitch, you know. And I say, well, all the great musicians that you listen to playing, why they're great? Because the fact that they, they are expressing their innermost being of themselves, which is the, the how they feel about what they're doing. And if they can convey that with that uh, feeling they, they have within themselves, then you're going to have a hell of a performer that's got a lot to say. And I think we all got something to say, just how we say it. So this is my final question. I want to ask you, when the world of jazz opens that proverbial book, I know you're, you're, you've got a lot more left in you, but when they open up that book and they see your name in it, how do you want the world of jazz to remember you, your legacy, so to speak? I would just would say mainly uh, someone that was trying to keep that particular artistic thing alive. 
because I think it's very important about not only jazz, but it's just like uh, you take jazz and you try to keep that going, like you try to keep history going. You know, I mean, you you don't have all this history, and then you just say, well, it's like the, what they did maybe some years ago where they had all these books, and they try to get rid of all the books because they didn't want everybody to know certain things, and they want to have control. That's perfect. That's a great way to wrap everything up. Marcus, thank you for your time. Good You're luck with welcome. the show. Good luck with the show on Friday, man. We're going to have fun, man. I hope you be there and enjoy it, too. Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Marcus for his time, his honesty, and stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.